Hey everybody, and welcome back to Roots, the Living Tree podcast. In this episode, we're going to be talking about medical mistrust and just some of the general trust issues that come with having a chronic illness. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode. So just as a fun little tidbit of information to start off this episode, I I think I might have mentioned before, but I record these episodes in our walk-in closet because it's pretty big and I think the sound tends to come out better in here. But as I've recently found out within the last 10 minutes of being in here, there's no AC vent. And I was like, I have the AC on. Why is it so dang hot in here? It's just nobody wanted to put AC in the closet. I don't think they assumed that people would just be sitting in here and hanging out. So just imagine that while I was recording this, I was cool and calm and collected and not sweating like a pig. All right, so let's jump right into today's topic. So like I said, I am going to be talking about medical mistrust. And this is something that I've dealt with for a pretty long time and have just recently started to like gather my thoughts about everything and put different stories together and different experiences together to try to come up with why this is such an issue. I don't know if it's just me or maybe other people deal with this. And that's really why I want to talk about it, just to let people know that if they have dealt with this, that you're not alone. So I had to go back to a time where I thought this may have started, um, which would be when I was six years old, I ended up having a pneumonia and a collapsed lung. So I was in the hospital for quite a while. And thinking back on it, I don't truly remember having any instances or remembering any instances of any doctors who were rude or bad. um, Because I do tend to have a pretty good memory, even that far back. So I just assume that maybe that was medical trauma that I didn't deal with and probably still haven't truly dealt with. But I don't think that that's where any of this issue started. I believe that the first really strong memory of like poor bedside manner from a doctor happened when I was a senior in high school. And in the beginning of the year, I had laryngitis like three or four times. So I had like lost my voice and like had to recover from that just to get laryngized again. And I was having like symptoms that were like burning in my throat and like hoarseness and all that different stuff. And so I believe my mom suggested to go to the pediatrician and get looked at for maybe possibly acid reflux. And so I remember my dad took me and we went to the pediatricians. And at that point, I was probably either 17 or 18. And so it was like the time where you need to start transitioning to like a regular, like not family practice, just a regular primary doctor, but I hadn't done yet yet. So I was still going to the pediatrician and she had like brought that up after looking at my age on my chart, she was like, don't you think you should go to like a different doctor now? And we were just like, oh yeah, we'll look into it, blah, blah. But then we got into like the reason why we were there. 
And I was explaining to her that it was important for me to have more control over my voice, my vocal cords, because at that time, my dream was to get accepted into the Disney College program and become a character performer at Disney World. And so obviously I needed a voice to do that and a voice that I could rely on and that was dependable wouldn't give out on me due to weird circumstances. And I said that and my dad's smiling because he knows that my dream. I'm smiling because I'm like, I love talking about my dream. And this pediatrician just says, "Um, don't you think you should look into like a real career? And I remember looking at my dad and just like, the blank stares we gave each other were so comical and we didn't really like say anything after that because like what do you even say to that I mean you go to the doctor for medical advice not for her to give her opinion on your life stream and so we kind of moved past that really quickly and got back to like talking about the medical issue and she didn't really even address that she kind of just said oh like you're still growing like your voice is gonna do weird things and blah 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 and so we left and we sat in the car and we kind of just like laughed about the whole thing and it really wouldn't bother me until later in life when these symptoms of like heartburn and hoarseness and burning in my throat would be actually diagnosed as not only acid reflux but Barrett's esophagus, which really is just an instance of acid reflux going untreated for too long and then causing the Barrett's esophagus. So at that point, I was really upset because that was years later. Like it was at least three or four years later that I was diagnosed and I could have been on the medication I needed to be on to treat my acid reflux so that Barrett's esophagus wouldn't happen. And Barrick's esophagus can become cancerous. And luckily at that point, I wasn't at even a stage one. I was just like going into the realm of that being a possibility. And I was just upset because there was a major opportunity for her to do her job, to be a doctor, to care about my well-being. And she completely just threw that in the trash. So the next instance that I would go through that really was a turning point in how I felt about doctors and whether or not I would fully trust doctors would be when I was actually officially diagnosed with fibromyalgia. So that was in 2011 and I had been having symptoms of all over chronic body pain and fatigue and all that kind of stuff. And so doing research, the symptoms brought up that it could possibly be fibromyalgia. And at that point, it had been seen as a rheumatic illness. And so you would go to a rheumatologist. And so naturally, that's where I went. And at that time, and pretty much still to this day, there's no specific test for fibromyalgia. There's no like blood test that's like, boop, you have fibromyalgia. So basically I went and had to be tested for MS, ALS, muscular dystrophy, just to rule everything else out so that the only thing we were left with was a fibromyalgia diagnosis. And I had not, as a 19-year-old, prepared myself 
mentally, and I don't know if I could have prepared myself physically for any of those tests, but that is a huge chunk of my diagnosis process and my life that I don't think I had truly come to terms with how traumatic it was for me, but those tests were just horrendous, and I don't think that still to this day I've dealt with what that really did to my mental health and how much it traumatized me, but looking back, I can definitely see that that was um, a really tough time, and I don't think I really went through all those emotions at the time. Um, So once all those test results had come back negative, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia, and so that day she had told me that, that that's what we were going to be moving forward to treat, and between the time of the initial um, consultation and during the time of the testing, I had been doing research about fibromyalgia because I kind of had a hunch that that's what we were going to end up with, Um, and so I had looked for different treatment options and of course some of the first things that come up are medication and at that time in my life I was really not down with all the side effects that those medications came with and I know that not everyone feels those side effects but I was not willing to risk any of that and so I had looked into the more holistic treatment plans like physical therapy and yoga and different um, practices like that And so I knew going in that if I was to have fibromyalgia, that's where I wanted to start. And after she told me I had fibromyalgia, she didn't even let me get a word in edgewise before grabbing her prescription pad and writing me a prescription for an antidepressant, which I was confused why she was writing that for me anyways, because like that's not what I thought was going to happen. But she said it was supposed to help me sleep and this and that. And that wasn't really even an issue at that point. So I didn't really understand it at all. And I said, whoa, whoa, wait. Can we try out like physical therapy or aqua therapy or something like that first? And she was not about that at all. She was like, no, this medication will work. I can even give you this other medication. And I was just so overwhelmed and so upset that she just wasn't even willing to hear me at all about what I wanted. And it was just so frustrating that I pushed the prescription back over to her, left her office, called my mom sobbing, and was just so upset of the whole situation. Because I know doctors have so much more training and knowledge than me as just a normal human being in the medical world. But that doesn't discount my opinion or how I feel about treating my own body. This is my body. This is, I have to live with this. And so I feel like I should have some say in that, if not like most of the say in like what goes into my body or what I do with my body. And so at that point, I turned that frustration into what became like my advocacy And so that's why I say it was like a turning point for me and it really changed me for the better because it taught me that I can't just give doctors the benefit of the doubt just because they're doctors. And I think that's such a tough thing for people to grasp because 
you are supposed to be able to trust doctors. You are supposed to be able to give them your trust and put hope in them that they can help you. And when that's that trust is like bent and just turned the wrong way, like you completely lose that for them. And so that's kind of where I was for a long time. And it started to bleed over into different aspects of my health, not even just with my fibromyalgia. But because with fibromyalgia, you have a lot of tag along conditions, you have to see other doctors. And life just happens and things happen that would require you to go see a doctor. And that would be the next thing that happened to me is a foot injury that I had. I ended up falling off a ladder, technically not falling off. I jumped from the top of like a 12 or 15 step ladder and landed on the ball of my right foot at the bottom of it. And it completely like ripped up my foot and the tendons and all that kind of stuff. And that whole process was so bananas because it happened at work. And so then I had to deal with like workers comp and like, what do you have to do to get workers comp? Which I didn't end up getting workers comp because I don't know that I truly understand or understood at the time how that all works. Um, But I ended up going to a foot doctor because... What they originally thought was that I just, like, bruised my foot or something. But I was constantly having this pain in the bottom of my foot. And I kept saying it was in the bottom of my foot. But when I went to the foot doctor, they kept just injecting cortisone in the top of my foot. And I kept having the pain and... It went so far as they wanted to do exploratory surgery. So that was fine, whatever, because I kind of didn't see any other option. They had kept doing the cortisone shots, and that wasn't doing anything. But on top of the exploratory surgery, the foot doctor was like, well, while we're in there, we can fix the bunion that you have on your right foot. And I really didn't have that bad of bunions. They weren't painful. I didn't even mention them. It was just something that he had brought up that he had noticed about my foot. But it really wasn't a big issue to me. But in my mind, because he's reassuring me that this is something I need to make my foot better. And we might as well do it because we're already working on this foot. I said, okay. And so we find out that the reason that the cortisone shots didn't work was because I had a neuroma, which is like a big ball of tendons and neurons, in the bottom of my foot where I said it hurt, that the shots weren't reaching. And so they took that out, um, but then they also removed my bunion. And that recovery was really hard. Like, you're on one foot, um, not to mention I was away at college for the first semester that I was ever, like, away from home. That whole thing is another story in itself, but it was like a real struggle for me to recover from that. And to this day, I don't know that I'm better off for having that surgery. Like I still have foot pain. It's still uncomfortable in my foot. And I, looking back, don't know that there was like any true benefit to having that surgery. 
And so then I think, was he just trying to get my money? Like, was he just trying to book a surgery so that he could, like, get my insurance to give him my money? And I hate to think that way, but I don't think that his heart was at the forefront of treating me. And that's what upsets me the most. And you'd think I would have learned from that situation. Like having to have a surgery, having to recover from that, not seeing the benefits from it. you think I would have, I don't know, been a little bit smarter about things. But then in 2016, 2017, my post-nasal drip was just so like I could not deal with it anymore. Like I could, I felt like I couldn't breathe. I couldn't swallow. And so I went to see an ENT and instead of like prescribing me any sort of like nasal spray, like I had been given before, he seemed to think that the only option was to do surgery and fix the apparent deviated septum that I had. And he had shown me the, um, MRI or the CAT scan of my head that showed the deviated septum. And I know I'm not a doctor, but when I think of a deviated septum, I think of like, this thing is looking wonky. Like you can clearly see that it's something that needs to be fixed. But in my scans, I really didn't see that much of a difference. But in my mind, I'm like, if this is what's going to fix my postnasal drip and help me to breathe better and help with my vertigo and sinus headaches and all that stuff, I was like, okay, let's go for it. But while I was thinking that and while I was like in his office and thinking about the the options that I had, he said to me, well, here's your two options. You can either have surgery to fix it or you can continue living in pain. What are you supposed to say to that? Like, obviously, I don't want to be in more pain on top of the pain that I already experienced. And so, of course, I would think my only other option is to have surgery. And again, I was jaded. (laughs) This no surgery did nothing. And again, it was a horrible recovery. And I still to this day have post-nasal drip that has not gotten any better and still have like nose pain from the surgery itself and scarring and all that jazz. And it just builds and builds on top of my true mistrust of doctors. Like I don't know that I can truly tell their goal as a doctor, their motives as a doctor. And I don't like that feeling. So because of all of this, I have very rarely stayed with one doctor for a long period of time. And where this gets tricky is due to the fact that a lot of people with chronic illness can be seen as like doctor shoppers. And there can be many different reasons for that. But I know one of the main reasons that chronic pain patients are seen as doctor shoppers is because they'll hop around from doctor to doctor to gain access to opioids or opiates um, to help with their pain management. But the other reason would be because they 
truly don't like the doctor, don't trust the doctor, and they're just trying to find the right fit. But I feel like that's seen as, oh, the patient isn't hearing what they want to hear, and so they're going to go find a doctor until they hear what they want to hear. And I don't see how that's necessarily a bad thing. Like, we're truly just trying to find a caring, compassionate, knowledgeable physician. And if it takes two or three or four doctors to get to that right person, then what's wrong with that? Think of it this way. If you go to a salon and you get your hair done by a stylist and you absolutely hate it, would you really want to go back to that same stylist or would you maybe go and try a different salon and a different stylist? Like, I kind of don't see the big difference between those two events. But something I do want to mention is that through the years of dealing with all this um, mistrust of doctors, I have had some really amazing doctors and it's only been like weird circumstances that they haven't been in my life to help treat me for a long time. So one of the first really great doctors that I can remember having was my OBGYN back when I lived in upstate New York was so amazing and she was just a kind and caring person And I remember going to her because I was having such bad, like, cramping. And so for some reason, I was like, maybe I have endometriosis or something. And she was totally fine with me coming in to, like, get it checked out and just make sure that it wasn't that. And so I went in, and she checked me out. And she's like, I don't see any signs of endometriosis, but I I do remember you saying that you have, like, acid reflux and like stomach problems and irritable bowel syndrome she's like have you seen someone about that and I was like no not yet it's just something that I've known that I have but like haven't been like seen for it and she didn't have to bring this up but she felt that it was necessary to mention that the cramping and what felt like my ovaries being squished could have been the inflammation of my intestines from irritable bowel syndrome literally squishing my ovaries. And I was just so amazed about like how she did that because she didn't have to try to help me in another aspect of my medical and health journey, but she was such a great human being and also a great doctor that she went above and beyond what her job was. And, um, I only didn't stay with her because I ended up moving out of state, but she was truly amazing. And then I ended up getting a really amazing primary care doctor that was just so open to trying new things for my fibromyalgia and was willing to put the work in and do the research that it took to find out about new treatments and see what what else there was as a possibility to um, do as a treatment for fibromyalgia. And I was with her for probably a few months, and I was feeling like on top of the world. I was like, yeehaw, I finally have a good doctor. And then I went to make an appointment with her, and they said she had moved to work in pediatrics. And I was like, no. I was like, can I still see her? And they're like, no. So that was another weird instance where I couldn't have stayed with a doctor. 
But then another recent doctor that I've had who is a specialist and they wouldn't really have any reason to treat me for like any other thing than what I go to them for is my cardiologist. And it's been a real like 180 of what I've seen from doctors in my past. He made sure he took the time to really talk to me and I felt heard. And he also made sure that he took the time to explain in detail everything he had to put out on the table as for what was going on with my heart. And it was truly amazing. And I was able to bring up other things with him. And more specifically, um, I was able to talk about how I had wondered if I had POTS, um, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And I told him, I said, well, I know that because what I currently have wrong with my heart is largely in part to the dysautonomia that I have because my autonomic nervous system does not function correctly. And that's one of the main reasons I have such issues with fibromyalgia. Um, I was like, I'd never been tested for that. And so do you think that it's a good thing to get tested for that? Just to like make sure that's not another thing that I have on my huge list of conditions. And he said something that I feel like I've never heard a doctor say, which is I would not put you through that because it is torture. And I already feel like you do have a connection to that and probably have some variation of it or some level of it. And so I wouldn't subject you to that testing. And to hear that, that was like the first true moment of like absolute care from a doctor that he would say, no, I would not do that to you. Because most doctors would have said, yes, have the surgery. Yes, have the testing. Just because either they truly don't know and they want to rule it out or because it's it's money in their pocket. I really don't, and I don't think I'll ever understand doctor's motives, but it is nice to have a doctor that is in my life. And while it is just for cardiology, it's nice to know that in some aspect of my medical journey will be better because I have found a truly good doctor. And something else that I wanted to mention that plays a huge role in all of this is that I have gained almost a mistrust of my body itself. So that's what I was kind of referencing when I talked about just general trust issues, um, having a chronic illness, is that I don't trust that my body can do what it was made to do because I've seen it fail time and time again. And so I don't know how to rebuild that trust because I have, at this point, I'm not following any treatment plan. I'm not on any medication. And so that kind of tells me that my body is still going to continue to do whatever it wants to do because 
that's the issue with it. And I am kind of at a standstill right now, which is frustrating, but I'm hoping that over time and with the help of good doctors that I can build that trust back up with my body and with my health and hope that I can have some sort of hope that I can function like a normal human being at some point in the future. So that's all I have for today's episode. And I just want to say that I'm so grateful for anyone who listens to this podcast and listens to my story. This is really like therapeutic for me and has really helped me get out a lot of my feelings towards my chronic illness. And I hope that it can help anyone who's listening, whether you have chronic illness or not, I hope that it can help you in some way or give you the knowledge to help someone you love. And I'll see you guys in the next episode. Bye.